Good morning, Phoenix Bible Church. Uh, my name is Zach. I am uh, one of the core leader group. I guess I don't know what our team name is, but um, I uh, oversee community groups here. Um, I'm excited to be back with you this week, guys, uh, continuing in Ephesians. Um, first of all, where's Tim? So our uh, lead pastor, Tim, is actually in Portland this weekend, preaching at Redeemer Church in Portland. Uh, Redeemer has been a, uh, a great friend and support to us, uh, both relationally and financially, uh, as we've uh, launched this church these past two years, uh, which is cool because they're a new church plant too. And so it's been cool to see new churches come alongside us to help us, uh, people who believe in Pastor Tim, who want to see uh, Phoenix Bible Church grow and, and make an impact in Phoenix. And so Tim's up there sharing our story with the people of Redeemer uh, in apparently what is the storm of the century up in the Northwest right now. Um, so pray for him just uh, as he preaches this morning uh, for safety uh, in the weather. And uh, he will be back with us uh, in a couple weeks, actually. Next week he uh, will be at a wedding as well. So um, we're going to continue here in Ephesians. And today we kind of hit the midpoint of the book. This passage is kind of the pivot point from which Paul goes from doing uh, kind of a doctrinal explanation to more of a practical application in the second half of the book. And uh, so just if you haven't been with us, we'll, I'll briefly summarize uh, where we've gone, what, we're, what we've been talking about. So uh, the letter uh, of to the Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul. It's written to a church that's in a very, very busy seaport uh, that kind of served as a regional church because of the importance it had within trade, and so there would have been a uh, large church within, within Ephesus, but then also there would have been some connection with the surrounding rural areas, and so Paul writes to this uh, group of believers in Ephesians, and also this letter was likely cycled around the region uh, to the other churches. Um, so the, like I said, the first three chapters are doctrinal, so as we've gone through, we've seen that uh, Paul's talked about we've been chosen and adopted by God to become heirs in his family according to his will. We see that in chapter 1. We see that our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is the Father's guarantee to us that he will indeed save us. We see that our salvation is not based on what we have done, for we are all dead in sin and brought back to life by grace through faith. Um, we see there is no ethnic barrier to the people of God. The promise of Abraham to be a blessing to all nations is fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus has made a way for both Jew and Gentile to be reconciled to God. Uh, last week we talked about how this is the uh, great mystery. It's kind of the great plot twist of scripture. That Jesus ends up being the only Israelite that fulfills the covenant. And is able to completely maintain the Israelites' responsibilities with that covenant. And then turn, in turn becomes the sacrifice for all of us and conquering death by his resurrection. And by his work, both Jew and Gentile can be imputed with his righteousness. And it's this gospel. This is the gospel that Paul is willing to suffer for. So he's in prison as he's writing this letter. So today we get to chapter 3, verse 14. We're going to go through the end of chapter 3 today. This is the, like I said, kind of the pivot point as we go from doctrinal to the application part of this book. So let's go ahead, uh, if you would, flip with me to Ephesians 3.14. Um, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. If you uh, don't have either an app or a Bible available to you, there are some Bibles scattered throughout. If you don't have one and uh, you would like to take one, take that with you. That's our gift for you too. 
Um, so verse 14, Paul, says, Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And so we see here he says, for this reason. So we need to figure out what that reason is. And really, this reason kind of goes back a little bit farther than a lot of times we see uh, connections in Scripture go. Paul in chapter 3, the first part, kind of goes on a digression explaining this mystery of the gospel. So Paul's really referring back to the end of chapter 2 where he showed about how the death of Jesus allowed for all people, Jew and Gentile, to be brought near to God. And then he kind of goes on a, a diversion where he talks about why he's willing to suffer for that. So it's for this reason that Jesus died, Jew and Gentile brought together. This, it's for this reason that Paul bows his knees before the Father. Now, at that time, the customary position for prayer was actually standing. And so the physical orientation doesn't matter so much as much as what Paul conveys by using these words here. He's talking about bending his knee, showing uh, a deep worship, a deep homage towards God. Um, it's not the typical physical posture. It's not the physical posture that matters in prayer, but it's Paul showing his internal posture through his physical description. So he bows his knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This phrase, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, is hugely theologically rich. Paul's identifying God as the creator of all things, both on earth and in heaven. It's more than just simply that God gave names to everyone. But if you think about it, you get your name from your father. God gave us all our names. He gave all of creation names. He gave all of heavenly realms names. God is the ultimate creator of all things. Both heaven and earth owe their existence to the sovereign God who exists outside of creation and we see in Paul's uh, sister letter, the letter to the Colossians, which mirrors closely Ephesians, uh, he describes Jesus as the one who sustains all these things in a, just an amazing kind of psalm hymnal that we see in chapter one of that. Paul, in his prayer beginning, acknowledges who God is. It's important for us to do that as well when we approach God in prayer, is to acknowledge first and foremost who we are approaching, that we are approaching the creator of the universe, the sovereign of the universe, the one who uh, sustains everything and holds it together by, the, by his word. And what can we learn from this? We can learn that we can trust God because he is sovereign over all of creation, both earthly and heavenly. And not only that, this God we can trust that's sovereign over all is accessible. And I think that's the greatest news of all this. The great news is that God is sovereign, God is powerful, God has created us and sustains us, but he allows us to come to him. And if you know a little bit about how the Old Testament worked, the Old Testament, to be able to approach God because of the break that we had with our relationship with him through sin, required bloody sacrifices constantly. It was a brutal, brutal system. And now we, as Christians, who've been brought into this family of God, we've been brought from those outer courts that Tim talked about, near to God, we can approach God because Jesus has paid our sacrifice. He has paid the price. No longer do we have to go to a central temple. We don't have to bring animals to be sacrificed to atone for the sins that we've done. That's all been done and put away with because Jesus has done the work for us. 
But as we approach God, we also need to remember, too, that though it's been made accessible, we are still approaching the creator of the universe, and we should come humbly in a posture that is humble, that is prayerful, that is uh, acknowledging him through praise. Because ultimately, we're not approaching him because of anything we've done. Again, Jesus came and did the work so that we could approach. So when we approach, we shouldn't approach with our hands full of the things that we've done, with any sort of pride or understanding that, that we deserve to be there, other than the fact that Jesus chose to take our place to pay our punishment. So when we come to the Father, we must come in a posture, bowing our knees to the Father, understanding who he is. And then Paul continues on with the content of his prayer. So he, he sets up who he's praying to and how he's praying to, and then he continues in the content of the prayer in verse 16. It says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul begins praying that we would be strengthened. And so this is one of these areas where I get to be a little nerdy, where it says strengthened with power. Maybe a better translation of that would be powerfully strengthened. So it's not so much that we would be strengthened with some sort of power that's been given to us, but that we would be strengthened by something that is ultimately powerful. Because we're being strengthened by God. And so Paul asks that we would be powerfully strengthened, radically changed by God through his spirit, through the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That idea of the working of the Holy Spirit in our heart and in our minds changes our affections, it changes the way we see the world. It's important that we understand that the Holy Spirit moves in both ways. And again, nerdy a little bit more, it's the passive voice, grammar nerds, of this word. And so what that means is that the subject is getting acted upon, not doing the action. So a simple explanation of that would be for me to say, I hit the ball, that's active voice. I'm the one hitting the ball. If you say, the ball was hit, you see now that the subject, the ball, is the one being acted on by an outside force? That's what's happening here. When Paul asks for us to be strengthened, it's not that he's asking that we would strengthen ourselves in some way, but that we would be powerfully, externally strengthened by God the Father. And this powerful strengthening comes from a bottomless well of God's glory, his glorious riches. You can imagine the creator of the universe that spoke the world into existence has a deep, deep well of power that he can create all that we see and sustain all that we see simply by his words. Imagine how much more power that there is behind that. This is the well that we draw from. This is the well that's poured out upon us for strengthening. If we mistake this and think that somehow the exercise of prayer will strengthen us in the same way that we physically exercise, then we're drawing from the wrong well. So when we think of being strengthened in power, we often think of maybe working out, lifting weights, doing things to our body that we do to strengthen ourselves. If we take that same approach spiritually, we're drawing from the wrong well. We're drawing from a well that at best, the dirt on the bottom might be a little damp. But realistically, it's dry. It's bone dry. 
There's no real power and real strength that's meaningful that's to be drawn from our own strength. We have to rely on God's strength to empower us through his spirit. So our access to the well of God's glorious riches is through our faith in Jesus Christ. It says in verse 17, so that, your faith, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this isn't simply a faith that intellectually assents to the facts of who Jesus is. You may have heard me just a minute ago talk about what Jesus did for us, and you agree with that. And that's good. James says, great, you believe God is one. You're orthodox. And then he says, but so are the demons. Last week, I had a chance to, to actually preach another church on that passage, and it so wonderfully ties together with this passage. James talks about this idea of just having an intellectual sense of who God is doesn't mean anything. We see in the Gospels that the demons know who Jesus is, who he really is. It's not enough simply to be orthodox and to be intellectual in your faith, but it has to be a faith where you throw your life into the hands of Jesus, trusting that he is powerful enough to save you from the punishment you deserve from your sin. It's through this faith that Christ takes up residence at the very center of who we are. When he talks about Christ dwelling in our hearts, the idea of the heart's the very center of who you are. It's your personality, it's your intellect, it's your, we would say, soul maybe, is a good example. We can see through scripture that salvation results due to be giving a changed heart. It talks about where God gives us a new heart, a heart made of flesh. It's through this saving work, we become fundamentally different than who we were before we were saved. We're no longer living as one who at our core is selfish, self-centered, looking to preserve our own life or preserve our own power or status, but we now become a person that's centered on Christ, that we look to God as our source of our strength, that we look to Jesus as our substitutionary atonement the one who paid the price for the sins that we deserve punishment for, the Holy Spirit as the one that continues to guide us to become more Christ-like, to soften our hearts even more deeply. This is who we become as Christians. This is who Paul is talking to as Christians. He wants to see us continue to grow in depth of that, the understanding of that. And he talks about in having our heart changed, that, that God roots us in the soil of his love. It says at the end of verse 17, that you being grounded and rooted in love. In the same way that a, a redwood tree or, or whatever tree you can think of, the biggest tree you can think of here, it's like a Palo Verde. It's not as good of an illustration in Phoenix. Um, but think of the trees that actually survive monsoon storms. These great, powerful trees that we, that we have uh, throughout the world. Those trees, those mighty redwoods, are completely sustained by the soil that their roots are in. It's where all the nutrients come from. It's where the life happens. And I know science nerds, there's things that happen in the leaves. I don't remember all the names. And my mom's going to be embarrassed when she hears that. But... The nutrients, the life comes from the soil. You can have leaves and no roots, and it's not going to work very long. We as Christians are only going to experience true life, meaningful life, everlasting life, through the nourishment of God's glorious grace and God's glorious love. 
God has rooted us and designed us to be rooted into his love. That's what sustains us, is God's love. We see that in different ways. We see, yes, God's love sustains us in the fact that he sustains the universe out of his love for us. We can see that God sustains us through his love by providing relationships and family and the church to come alongside us in times of difficulty. But what we need to remember most is that everything that sustains us for meaningful life is from God's love. And then Paul kind of mixes metaphors here. He says rooted and grounded or, or, or founded upon God's love. So he goes from kind of a gardener perspective to a builder's perspective. So uh, if you're uh, like me and you kill everything that's alive, that may not be the best thing. I'm like, I kill everything. Building, okay, I can build stuff. Let's, let's talk about that. So not only do we live being rooted in God's love where we sustain and live through it, but then we're also founded upon it. So it's not just the soil, but the foundation itself of everything that we do in our life. Anything that's going to be meaningful and lasting needs to be founded upon God's love. So what does that mean for us? If we've truly been saved by grace, it's through a faith that produces a deep love for God and others. This is the point Apostle James, the Apostle James writes when he writes of faith without works being insufficient. And Jesus' commands to believers, he boils it down to two things. What are they? Love God, love others. A faith rooted in and built upon God's love is a faith that's going to be sufficient. It's going to be a faith that brings about salvation. And by being totally immersed in God's love through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it empowers us not just for great deeds, though that is a result of it, but primarily it's for us to know the immeasurable wealth of God's love. You can't fully understand how huge the Pacific Ocean is until you get dropped out of a boat in the middle of it and it sails away. And you'll suddenly have a much deeper understanding than if you're standing on the shore or if you're looking at it on a map. In the same way, as we dive deep into God's love, as we're immersed in God's love, we're going to find how immeasurable and how deep that well really is. And the great news with that is it's never going to end. There's always more to experience. There's always more ways that God's going to expose his love to you. That he's going to show you how he loves you. That he's going to build a passion for you to love him and love others by showing his love for you first. Paul desires for us to have an experiential, growing knowledge of God's love. It's not, again, a mental, intellectual ascent of like, yes, God's love is immeasurable. And I can give you a chapter and verse where it says that. And, and I can give you verses on how that's going to turn it into good works. And I can build you this great systematic theology. That's all very important. Trust me, I'm a seminary nerd. I love that stuff. But if you don't experience God's love, it's just spinning your wheels. It's an intellectual exercise that produces no life change. Paul in this passage almost seems to be struggling to find the words to explain this paradox. And I can relate with him. I don't feel like there's enough words in the English language to explain what he's trying to say here. We should desire to know the depths of God's unknowable love. That feels confusing, but there's no other way to explain it than that. 
Paul wants us to continuously grow in our understanding of his love. Even though we're finite, even though we're never fully able to measure the depth and width of that love, even in eternity, that depth of love is still going to be immeasurable. That's the exciting part about looking forward to when Jesus does finally come back, when he does call his people unto him and we live with God among us, is we're never going to get to a point where we haven't figured out even then. Even when we have a face-to-face experience with him, even when we have time to do systematic Bible study with Paul, when we have all this time to do this, we'll still never get to the bottom of the well. That's exciting. When I grew up, I thought of heaven as like this never-ending church service. And then the song, I Can Sing of Your Love Forever came out, and I was like, if this is heaven, I don't know if this is what I want to do. Because I don't know if I can sing of your love for 30 seconds, let alone for forever. And while there's still part of me that that's true, as God's grown me, as he's built this, God, this love inside of me, I've come to the point that though I would say theologically that's not the case, if that were the case, if heaven was for me to stand and sing, I could sing of your love forever, literally forever, it's worth it. Because I'll never find the end of that. And so yes, we can sing of his love forever because it's not just going to be a static, never-changing thing. It's going to be new. We're going to see new ways that God pours his love out on us as we worship him in eternity. I'm excited. I'm spitting. You guys, you guys got to work with me here. Come on. I even lost my place. So this is what God's calling us to do as Christians. He's calling us to be overwhelmed and awed when we experience God's love. Have, do you feel that? Have you felt that in a long time? Have you felt an overwhelming awe of just like, I... I can't understand this. I don't know how you love me. I don't know how I can continue to find new ways that you love me. We get a little picture of this. This is why sometimes we see that the authors of Scripture compare the church and Jesus to a marriage. If you're married, you understand this, that each day you kind of find new ways where you, where you find new ways that, that either your spouse loves you or that you love your spouse. There's kind of this ever-growing depth well of love. Or if you have kids... That's what I'm experiencing now. I have an 18-month-old daughter, and it's like every day, like my wife texts me the other day, she's like, I never knew I would find anyone else that I would love more every day. And that's just a little tiny picture of what God wants for us. God wants us in perfect relationship with him to grow in the depth of understanding how much he loves us. And we know this journey is never going to be complete. Guys, in the same way that that you realize you never fully understand why your wife loves you, I mean, sometimes you get some some ideas and you're like, oh, okay. And usually it's because they love you for out of selfless love, not because you're awesome. You you you, re, you get a little taste of this, and it continues to grow and grow and grow. God is inviting us into a life where we're immersed in His love, where Everything that we do is sustained and fed by his love, and everything we do is built upon his love. Anything that's going to matter, that's going to have any sort of eternal impact, has got to be built on his love. And then Paul wraps up Ephesians 3 with verse 20 and 21. 
which I wish I had like the, the homiletical, that's a nerd term for preaching, the, 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 the ability to proclaim this in, in some heart-wrenching way because when you read this, man, Paul's like, he's digging deep here. He's going Shakespeare on us right here when he does this. But he, but he, he ends it with something we call a doxology, this, this great kind of prayer that glorifies God. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so in this prayer, he both exalts God and assures us that God will continue forever to show us the depths of his love through all generations and beyond. Into the, new, into the new era where we are finally reunited in the city of God with God living among us. Paul reminds us of God's sovereignty to accomplish the above and beyond anything we can even think or imagine. So again, this is the God that created the universe, that holds the universe together. And Paul's reminding us, yes, he can accomplish what you ask, and so much more than you could ever even think or imagine. And it makes sense, right? Because we're finite on this planet in this huge universe, and we're like, this is all just held together by his, his word? Yeah, so he can do so much more than we could ever possibly imagine. He can show us the depths of his loves in ways that we cannot imagine, that we're never going to be able to imagine. But more than anything, I think the thing that would probably help us see this the best is when we think about the fact that God, who is able to do the most miraculous thing, which is to take those who are far from him, who are enslaved to sin, who are pursuing sin with reckless abandon, and bring them close, pay the debt for the sin that they commit, and not only that, but make them children in his family, adopt us into the family, Give us a share of the inheritance that Jesus earned. If God can do that, if God can do that with me, you're right, I can't imagine what else he could do. Because I can't imagine being willing to do that for anyone. God's able to do anything that would bring further glory to his name. And there's nothing that brings more glory to God than when we see someone whose heart is changed by God and God draws them near. Someone who you would look at and go, there is no way that person would ever turn to Jesus. And God just draws them in with his love. This isn't a solely individual work, though. It's a work that we need to see happen in the church as well. As relationships rooted in love continue to grow, we become more like Christ. So if everything we do is rooted in love, is immersed in love, that means our relationships, especially in the church, need to be rooted in love. What better example can we show the world than to have loving relationships? That doesn't mean that we have everything perfect, that we agree with everything, but that we truly are affectionate for each other, that we actually like each other. What a crazy idea. A group of people that, if we went around this room and we kind of lined everyone up by like the stuff they're into and their favorite hobbies, you'd be like, oh, there's like three people here that I would actually like if it weren't for Jesus. 
I mean, that's miraculous. That's unbelievable. God brings us together as a family. God uses Google to bring people here. That's awesome. And then they get here. So, like, that's all they know, Google. They get here, and then they meet other people who love Jesus, and they stay here and become part of our family. That's a miracle. God brings us together around his love, rooted in his love, based on the foundation of his love. That's why we say love moves. That's why we talk about love all the time. You guys are like, oh my goodness, love. Yes, love moves. And the first thing we want to do is love Jesus. Like that's what we want because if we miss that, the rest is a waste of time. It's either going to fail or be fruitless. And ultimately, yes, while, while this work that God does is beneficial to us, by experiencing God's love at a deeper level over and over again, and our love for God growing even more because of that, and our love for other people growing because of that, that's beneficial to us, ultimately, what that does is glorify God. Do you see how the work of God through Jesus glorifies God? Yes, we benefit from the results of that. But it shows God how he's holy, how he truly is different, because sin can't just be winked at. It can't be brushed aside. His justice of there needs to be a payment for sin. But at the same time, his mercy, because while that payment must be paid, he finds a way to have it be paid and have death be conquered so that he can draw us in, so that he can start to repair that relationship that we broke in the garden. And this glorification is going to continue forever, both in this age and the next. When we get to heaven, everything we do will glorify God. Everything. That's awesome. No more sin. And so everything we do is just going to add to the heaps and heaps and heaps of glory that goes to God, and none of it is going to ever be sufficient. It's a bottomless well. We'll be fully freed from the effects of sin and death. We'll have perfect relationship with each other. We benefit from that. But ultimately, what does that do? It shows God's great glory in his creation, in how he designed it, how he intended it, how good he is. That's ultimately what it shows, God's glory. So how do we respond practically now, today, to this? What are tangible things that we can do to allow our understanding and awe of God's love to continue to grow. It's hard because it can't just be straight intellectual. It's not easy to be like, here we go, do these things. How do you at least start to work towards doing things, building rhythms in your life that, that's going to allow opportunities for God to move in your heart? If you're taking notes, the first one. Remember who it is who saved you and what you were saved from. So if we're going to properly respond to God, if we're properly going to approach God in the right attitude for prayer, we need to first remember who he is and remember the price that was paid to save us. So again, this is the God of the universe, the God that creates everything. You exist because he chooses to continue the existence. That's pretty powerful and you're entering his throne room when you go to pray. And we need to remember the price paid for saving us. We need to remember that Jesus set aside his glory in heaven where he's constantly being glorified. He set that aside to come to earth, 
the very people that while he simultaneously as God was sustaining their existence, he subjected himself to being murdered by them. Have you ever thought about that when you read Colossians when it talks about Jesus is sustaining the earth? Jesus sustained the existence of the cross. He sustained the existence of the nails. He sustained the existence of every person that shouted crucified him. He didn't even need to call down angels to end it. He could have just stopped and it's gone. And he endured all of that while simultaneously ensuring that it continued and existed. Because he knew there was a price that needed to be paid for sin and that he was the only one that could do it and allow for us to be reconciled to him and to God. That's why good doctrine matters. That's the part that's important about good doctrine. Because good doctrine, combined with the saving grace of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is going to result in a deep love that moves out of gratitude. Good doctrine is important because it should show you how great God is and how much he loves you. And the Holy Spirit in our lives is going to illuminate the text to us. The text should be bottomless, endless as we read through it. As we read familiar stories, if we come to it humbly, we should know that the Holy Spirit can illuminate deeper levels of love that we didn't experience before in that. But to be able to understand God's love and to be able to in turn then love God, you have to know who he is. So yes, good doctrine is important. Number two. We need to echo Paul's prayer. This isn't like prayer of Jabez stuff where you need to pray this prayer to make things happen. We're not bending God's arm into doing something. But we do need to echo this prayer that, that, that you individually, that us as a local church, as PBC, as the churches in Phoenix, as churches across the nation throughout the world, as we would be powerfully strengthened by God, to continuously grow in our understanding of God's love. Can you imagine every church throughout the world just continuously growing and growing in God's love? What that would do? How much glory God would get from that? We need to echo Paul's prayer. Number three, we need to remember where you're planted and what to build on. So again, Paul tells us we're rooted in God's love. And it suggests here that, again, it's passive. We are planted. We didn't plant ourselves. We're planted in God's love by God. God immerses us in his love. Sometimes I've heard like a, an illustration where it's like God's in the swimming pool and we're the kid on the, on the edge and we don't want to jump in. We're like, mm, and he's like, no, trust me, trust me. It's going to be amazing. You, you, you don't even know what you're, you're going to experience by jumping in and swimming the first time. And, and in the same way as, as the video kind of says, I think it, it's, it falls short a little bit on the explanation. It gives us kind of an idea and we, something we can relate with. But God reaches up and pulls us off the edge of, of the pool, holds us in his arms, holds us tightly and safely, and brings us into the pool where we can experience the depth of his love. We need to remember where our life comes from. Remember where you're planted, what to build on. Number four, we must recklessly pursue the depth of God's love. If you're like me, I'm not a particularly sensitive dude, if you haven't noticed. Um, sometimes this feels weird for me. 
I'm learning slowly what this looks like. I don't have a really good description of it. It's not like, oh, this is what reckless love, but like, if you're, if you're unsure of it, if you're not sure what it is, recklessly pursue it. Guys, if you're not particularly mushy, think of the way you pursued your wife when you started dating her. You, I guarantee you, you did something stupid to get their attention or to show them how much you love them. You did something. Ladies, I'm sorry, I don't mean to leave you out. I just don't have any experience. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so there, there's that. Um, but as we experience God's love in deeper ways, it's going to result in a deeper love for God and a deeper love for people. So do you see, our job isn't to work harder to love God or work harder to love people like, oh, i got to love people more. If that was up to me, it's not good news. <laughs> I'm not going to love people much more. I work in the service industry. So loving people is, that's sanctification. Like God is moving in my life if I love people. My goal is to experience God's love more, to experience what love looks like, what it feels like, what true love from God feels like, because what that's going to do is inspire love for me for God. And the more I love God, the more I'm going to love other people. I, just, I won't be able to help it, because the more I love God, the more I understand where I sit, where my position is, where God's position is, and where everyone else is. And so I see, when I see my brothers and sisters who are Christians, I see other people who have been redeemed the same way I am. And I love them because they're part of my family. When I see people who aren't part of the body, I love them because I know that were it not for God encountering and moving in my life, I would be in the same position as them. Because I love God more, I love more people more. It's not a matter of working harder to do it. It's a matter of just experiencing God's love more, and it'll happen. If you struggle to love other people, the solution is not to work harder, but dive deeper into knowing God. Dig into scripture. Don't make it something you have to work more about. If you had the opportunity to learn everything that you could about something that you love more than anything else, you would do it. It's provided to us. God has revealed himself to us. He's shown his story of how he's trying to redeem this planet while he's pulling us back to him, though we are rebellious against him. We see what his character is. We see what he demands of us. It's all here for us to know more about, to have a good relationship with. And in that, we're going to experience God's love because we're going to see what God has done and what he's going to do. And it's going to inspire love in our hearts for God. And with that, others will follow. Number five, we need to trust that God will do more than we can even think to ask. Ultimately, it's God that's working in our hearts, drawing us deeper into a relationship with him. We just need to be faithful and trusting that God will continue that work. In the same way that we have to trust that God is powerful enough to save, we need to trust that God is also true to his word, that he's going to continue to just unleash his love upon us, that we experience the fullness of God. So ultimately, it's not harder work by us that creates a deeper love for God and others. As we learn more about who God is, God continues to purify our lives, which will result in love. This is a wonderful work that God does and has been doing since before creation and will continue to do into eternity. 
This is the glorious God that we get to call Father, that we get to approach humbly. Let's continue as a church to experience God's love more deeply, to experience the love of Jesus more deeply, not only in our own lives, but in our church life as a family, that our relationships grow deeper in, in the love that we have for each other. This is, this is why I'm involved in doing community groups, because that's a place where you have that opportunity to do that. That's why community groups are so important to us here at PBC, because it gives you a place where, you're, where God can move in your heart, where God can build love for others as you come together to study about him and love him more. The more we experience the love of Jesus, the more it'll allow us to love God and love others more deeply for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for providing a way for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for, for providing a payment for the sin that we commit daily. Thank you for not withholding your love from us, God, but just pouring it out on us to the point that we can't comprehend how deep the well is. Father, help us just to experience your love in a deeper way, to be aware of the ways that you're trying to show us your love in deeper ways. Because as we experience more of you, our hearts can't help but to love you more. That we can't help but to love others more. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for sending a solution that could fulfill the payment and then prove that you are powerful enough to save by defeating death. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that continues to shape our hearts that you've left as a down payment, that we can trust in you, that you're going to return, that you're going to save us. God, I'm so unworthy of that. I'll never be able to comprehend it. But because of that, I also know that I'll never reach the bottom of the well. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.